0: the creator and host of The Last Symptom. Thank you for joining me this week. We're fixing to get into a discussion here today about a variety of different topics, but I wanted to take a moment to introduce myself to y'all first. Since I haven't done it for a while, and some of you might be brand new listeners, those of you who've been listening to me for a few years probably rolling your eyes saying, oh my gosh, he's not going to tell his life story again, is he? Well, I got to because there might be some new listeners. So I appreciate you uh, hanging in there while I do this for those who might be listening for the very first time. I personally live with borderline personality disorder. Some folks are calling it emotionally unstable personality disorder these days. But I lived with BPD myself for at least the first 35 years of my life completely unaware that I had it. Then I suffered a major life crisis, which gave me really no other choice but to begin seriously looking inward. And that's when I realized that not only was I unhealthy, but more specifically, that I had a nameable disorder. That was really shocking to me to discover that I had lived all my life with this nameable disorder disorder completely unaware fortunately for me i had never heard of things like borderline personality disorder before i hadn't heard of it in pop culture um you know if i had it just went right over my head and i'd never heard it or heard it i'd never entertained interest in learning or studying about psychology or emotional health or anything like that so when my eyes were open to the fact that I was living with this thing called borderline personality disorder and that I had always lived with it the first thing that came to my mind was well I'm going to figure out the fundamental causes of this thing and I'm just going to rid myself of it once and for all and I was successful at this it took me about seven years of seriously analyzing emotional disorders in general, and you know the specifics related to my life, uh, my family life growing up, my relationships, those sorts of things. But in time, I did successfully uh, rid myself completely of borderline personality disorder, and I've been living for quite some time now perfectly healthy, emotionally speaking, authentically free of any emotional disorders. Why do I say that I was fortunate for never having heard of things like Borderline Personality Disorder before? The reason I was fortunate is that the vast majority of all the quote-unquote experts on Borderline Personality Disorder tell you that things like Borderline Personality Disorder and Borderline Personality Disorder itself are incurable that there is much a part of you as the color of your eyes literally this is what the quote unquote experts teach people they tell you that it is interwoven into your genetic makeup so since it's part of what you inescapably are the best you should strive for is to learn to live with these disorders for the rest of your life and just com- commit some uh, coping techniques to rote memory do you know what uh, rote memory is that's when you repeat a thing so many times that it, it sort of becomes like a, a reflex I used rote memory learning quite a bit when I was learning Spanish in my 20s the way I'd do it is I'd put 30 Spanish words on an index card. 30 would fit on a 3x5 index card. So I'd write 30 Spanish words, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know. And then I'd flip the card over, and then I would uh, correspond the Spanish on the one side with the English equivalence words on the other side. And then I would lie in my bed, or throughout the day while I was working, I'd carry them in my short pocket get those cards out and i'd start practicing and the way i did it was so let's say that number one is tree then in my memory i'm trying to recall what tree is in spanish and then number two uh car what what is car in spanish number three dog what is dog in spanish and so forth and i would as i was going through these flash cards if I so much as hesitated for a split second on a single word let's say that I so like I said I could fit 30 on one card let's say I get to 25 and it takes me just a split second to recall the word in the other language then I would start all over from the beginning again um, if just the hesitation was a failure if, in my opinion so i would have to start the index card right back at the very beginning again so that was the the goal to run through those cards as quickly as i could seeing if i could pull into my memory the equivalent word in the other language and if a hesitation was a failure so i'd have to start from the very beginning again and for a certain period of time i was learning 100 brand new words a day this way but anyway, that's, that's rote memory. It's, it's like if you tell a story so many times for so many years, you tell the same story. Um, when you go to tell the story, somebody, let's say, asks you about, hey, tell me about that time you saw Bigfoot. And you've already told this story 19 million times over the course of 10 years. Rote memory allows you to tell the story without accessing memory. So you're not you're not pulling the story from memory you're just it's just like reflex you're just recalling it from uh, repetition the problem with this when it comes to emotional disorders is that this type of approach does nothing whatsoever to address the underlying causes of why a person is unhealthy to begin with this type of thinking where you just uh, you don't get to the root of the problem you you just look at the symptoms as if they're the problem that's the attitude that it reflects that the symptoms are really the problem forget about what's causing the symptoms it's the symptoms are the thing that we meet, need to be concerned about that's the problem and then as a result it leaves people uh, still suffering with the underlying causes so let's say that you can constrain yourself from doing it, from manifesting any of the symptoms of this emotional disorder whatever emotional disorder we might be talking about let's say that you can constrain yourself from exhibiting those symptoms but you haven't addressed the underlying problem it's still there it's still making you unhealthy and miserable and it's going to come out in other ways you know i think about a person who plugs a dam with their finger and then the rest of the dam starts to give away because you've plugged the the one escape that that, uh, the tremendous pressure behind that dam had to to escape you plug that up, the pressure hasn't gone anywhere so it's still there, and that's the way people are too and that's the problem with the professional community focusing on symptoms in fact, uh, I'd be curious to know how many of you folks out there listening have visited a therapist probably at the pleading of a partner only for the therapist to give you a few coping tricks then send you on your way and tell you that there's no need for you to keep seeing him or her has that ever happened to you ladies have you sent your your bows out there and has that happened to them Did they come back and say, the therapist says, I don't need to come back. And yet you still see all of the same issues that you saw before he went to the therapist. And fellers, has that happened to you? pleaded with a partner to go to a therapist. They go to the therapist and after five visits, they come back and say, the therapist says, I'm fine. I don't need to go back. Maybe your therapist has even said that there's nothing abnormal about you and has led you to believe that everything you're dealing with is just normal human behavior. Well, these sorts of therapists, and they make up the majority, I'm sorry to say, don't deserve the clothes on their backs. They really don't, because they're not earning their living. What they're doing is they're defrauding people for a living. And it really demonstrates, that, uh, demonstrates their complete and utter lack of genuine understanding and insight about what emotional health is, what emotional disorders are, and what sets them apart from what is just normal everyday issues involving the human condition. So imagine that. The entire reason that their jobs exist at all, and they can't even live up to the fundamentals of it. Uh, And like I say, it's unfortunate that I have to uh, say that, that that they make that type of therapist makes up the majority but it, they do um there are some great therapists out there but you you really have got to search for them so because I was never exposed early on to these lies about borderline personality disorder being incurable and the lies that my emotional disorder is an inseparable part of me i didn't start out working with these completely false premises This reminds me of uh, a famous study that was done on school-age children. So what they did was they took mediocre students in grade school, I think, and they started telling them that they were gifted. Wow, you're you're gifted. Your IQ is off the charts. And every interaction that they had with these kids uh, was of the same nature as the uh, interactions that they would have with truly gifted students so guess what happened all of the mediocre students grades shot up drastically for real just by the teachers these figures of authority telling them that they were really smart mediocre students began demonstrating really high levels of of intelligence for real. Does that work the other way around too? Yes, it does. Think about poor communities and abusive homes where children are raised being led to believe that their options are limited to a really small, narrow assortment of choices. In the vast majority of cases it doesn't even occur to these children even as they grow older that there is no limit there their limit is imaginary they're, they're constraining themselves to the, those limits but the limits aren't real it doesn't even occur to most of these children to aim higher so people born in certain conditions in most cases they just remain in those conditions because they've, they've come from families and from environments and neighborhoods where everybody says uh, you, you'll never make, you'll never be, you can't be anything greater than this, and so then they don't aim for anything higher than that. Uh, sure, you've heard of the elephant illustration, you've seen a meme of it or something, or heard of it somewhere along the way, but uh, it's it's where these giant uh, circus elephants can be restrained by just a single little cord. They just wrap a tiny little cord around their ankle put it in a you know, stick a, a post in the ground and it keeps the giant massive elephant there in place why because when they were baby elephants they were restrained by that same rope which at the time they couldn't break so now as adults it don't even occur to them that they can just snap that rope without any effort whatsoever it never even occurs to them to try so thank goodness that early on in my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder I had not been indoctrinated by the professional community or by popular culture to view borderline personality disorder as something that was incurable because there's a very good chance that if I had been indoctrinated that way ...that this thinking is what I would have limited myself to. My dogs keep snoring and distracting me. And I'm pretty sure my microphone would be picking up that snoring. So I keep having to stop and wake them up and, (laughs) and restart what I'm doing here. So as it happened, I did my work over seven years... ...on the premise that borderline personality disorder was something that could be understood and resolved completely and that's exactly what the truth proved to be and you know I still get messages from angry people this is true I still get messages from people who are furious at me for saying that borderline personality disorder is completely curable I got my dog I had to put my dogs up because they were snoring and I could not concentrate so here we are again and earlier on, it was my birds uh, singing and everything. And goodness gracious, I'll tell you what, since I've been recording video for these shows, it's gotten a lot more uh, complex. I guess it's just more to think about instead of just sitting down and doing it. Got to think about the presentation. Anywho, so the the elephant we use that, uh, we talked about that, yeah, that's what happened, and, um, yeah, so early on when I started trying to, when I set out to rid myself of borderline personality disorder, I wasn't working on that premise, oh, well, all the brainiacs out there, all the quote-unquote experts say that it's, it, you're, you're going to have to live with it for the rest of your life, I didn't know it, so I didn't have that imaginary rope, Around my ankle, holding me in place, and that's really what that is. That's really what that is. That's that's really the injustice that's going on between the professional community and the world of people suffering out there with emotional disorders. That's another thing, you know. They will have you believe that it's a mental illness, and even people who've been following me for years, I can't break them of that. It's not a mental illness. A mental illness is when your brain is malfunctioning. It's not a mental health issue. It's an emotional health issue. And um, you know, it, it's, it's frustrating for me to have been doing this now for, what are we, in the fourth season. People have been following me from the very beginning, and I, I love them to death. But they're not listening, or they're not learning, if they're still saying things like mental health and mental illness in regards to what are just emotional disorders so let's see uh, yes so uh, I think I was saying before we were so rudely interrupted that I still get messages from angry people all the time who have an emotional disorder like borderline personality disorder and um, and they're angry at me do you know what they, they tell me they angrily tell me that I'm lying to them and that borderline personality disorder is incurable and they parrot all the lies from the professional community these folks who are living with their emotional disorder they've never been free of it they're living with the disorder so they're emotionally unhealthy come to me a person who, who once had the same thing that they're dealing with and now who really doesn't have it? They come to me angry that I'm trying to break them free of that mental prison of believing that their emotional disorder is curable. That's what I'm trying to help them see and they rebel against that and fight against that. the same people who the professional community has only lied to and kept them imprisoned to their disorders, they will angrily jump to the defense of these same people, the same community of people who has never helped them at all in any genuine way. And of course they'll come out with they all say the same things. One of the same things that they all say is that, oh, how dare you? How dare you criticize these people who went to school for so many years and they've been studying this, you know, this field of study has been around for a 100 years and more and here you are thinking that you know better. Yes, I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. I do know better. What you're not taking into consideration is that I myself had the disorder. I spent seven years understanding it inside and out from personal firsthand experience and from personal necessity. Now I really don't have it, and I'm able to look back and examine it now on the other side of it. If you think that going to a university for four years or five years or six years, or I don't know how long a psychology degree is worth, you know, how much time investments uh, involved with that but it still doesn't compare to my, to my education on the matter from having personally dealt with it, from having personally studied it for seven years. That's a doctorate right there. And so you're really not thinking the thing through when you come at me with that argument. Because I don't have a degree, the work that I've done, my personal experiences in on the matter don't have any value They're, they don't have as much value as somebody who learned it from third hand sources or fourth hand sources you're out of your mind it's superior what I have to offer you is superior to what many of them especially the professional community as a group is offering you so that argument doesn't work but they, they get very angry and they come at me with those types of arguments. Why do they do this? Why would a person get so upset and angry and jump to the defense of people who have not helped them? Why would they do this? Where, where is this emotion coming from? Well, for one, if I really had such a severe emotional disorder and I truly escaped it, what would they imagine that this says about them uh, that they've yet to accomplish the same thing from their perspectives wouldn't this feed into the shame and the feelings of being inherently broken that they already live with also a belief in the lie that their emotional disorders are incurable make for a handy excuse don't they yeah, a real handy excuse not to make any real efforts to do the work necessary to change the attitudes and the beliefs that they live with, or to eventually give up certain behaviors. They enjoy being unhealthy too much. Another reason, which is the most disappointing of, of all for me, is that most of the people I come across with emotional disorders actually celebrate being Unhealthy. Yes, that's true. They wear their disorders like a badge of honor that they're proud of and they outright brag about. This is true. You're going to see this from now on, now that I brought it to your attention. When you go around Facebook and you go around Instagram, you see these people talking about their disorders, but not in a way to help anybody escape it or to offer any insight about underlying causes and how to fix those underlying causes you don't see none of that what you see instead most, most of these are unhealthy women trying to work up some kind of internet fame by posting about their emotional disorders in bragging sympathetic, proud ways or to generate sympathy and attention they view the disorders as being an inseparable part of themselves. Now, I wonder where they learned that from. Why did they learn to view their disorder as inseparable from them? But regardless, they do. And so their entire identities are wrapped up in the fact that they have borderline personality disorder. In fact, they would call themselves I'm ABPD. In other words, I'm a borderline personality disorder. Not that I have borderline personality disorder, but that's what I am. And these are the attitudes that they live with. And then they celebrate and make memes and posts celebrating this disgustingly unhealthy disorder. It's gross. Tired identities and celebrating and bragging about having this disorder, which is just repugnant. And that any anybody with any insight whatsoever knows is only a negative, and that uh, you know should only be rid. A person should only be interested in ridding themselves of things like that. So anyway, I really did have borderline personality disorder. It controlled every aspect of my life through childhood, through my adolescence, and my early adult years. And now I really don't have any emotional disorders I ain't perfect I'm still a human being but I am somebody who distinctly understands the difference between what is emotional health issues what is emotional disorder and what is simply the human condition and I truly did escape emotional disorder for real borderline personality disorder the more episodes of this show that you watch or you listen to And the more of my work you consume, if you're an honest, if you're an emotionally honest person, if you're an intellectually honest person, the truth of this will become self-evident. So there's no need for me to go to great pains to prove it to you here today, right here now. I've put in my work to demonstrate that I do know what I'm talking about. And that I'm somebody that you can trust and that uh, you can look to to help educate you on these things. But you'll also have to put in your share of the work. And that means taking advantage of the resources that I've already made available. I'm one of the few personalities out there that you will ever find who does not tolerate any positive talk about emotional disorders. It's like somebody bragging about a, a tumor you know a cancerous tumor why would you be proud of that you want it you want to get rid of it you want to be rid of it it's nothing to wax poetic about it's something that's not supposed to be there and it needs to be excised and that's the, that's the truth also with emotional disorders i also don't tolerate the types of thinking that says it's okay to just accept our emotional disorders as being part of us or you know making it, you know, embracing it as a normal part of our lives. Uh -uh. I don't tolerate that. My own recovery did not fly straight as an arrow in the seven years that I was working on myself. You know, it kind of took a side-goggling path. But I had a real end goal in view, and I achieved it. And I want and expect the same from people for people who come to me so that's the attitude that uh, that I want to cultivate in you a positive, determined, resolute attitude one that rejects the idea that these emotional disorders are anything fluffy and and anything to be proud about no they're not, they're ruining your life and if you don't know that it's only because you've never known anything different So, something to think about. we got some announcements. The Last Symptom website, thelastsymptom.com. I have uh, both free and paid services over there, as well as uh, the opportunity for you to donate to support my work if you'd like to do that. Uh, The paid services, one-on-one phone calls with me and one-on-one Zoom video calls with me. And also, I have developed and made available a two-week intensive course. It's pre-recorded works with your schedule no matter what your schedule is it's divided into three hour days so um, like three chapters a day for going into two weeks uh, doesn't mean you have to do all three hours of the program every day it just means that uh, that's the way it's divided up you can do one hour of the program a day and you know and then of course that would spread spread the course out over probably three four weeks but it is intensive it is comprehensive It's better than things like DBT. You can find that over at thelastsymptom.com. Would you like to join our online community? It's thriving. We would love to have you join us. The way you do that is by going to thelastsymptom.locals.com or you can download the locals.com app and search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett. Orange slices are condensed video highlights of this show in brief 5-10 to minute lengths and they appear on Rumble, YouTube, and Locals. Um, this show now is available in video format, it's something that I started regularly this year, this season and uh, you can subscribe to The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett channel on Rumble or on YouTube and watch this as videos, Uh, the Orange Slice videos, which are those condensed video highlights, are available on Rumble YouTube and Locals Locals being our online community Hi, old buddy. Come visit me yesterday, just dropped in on me. And I was telling folks in my uh, community there on locals that uh, this is something that's very common in Appalachia, where I'm from and where I'm at currently, where the people you know just drop in on you and unannounced. And this was something that I did not experience in all my years in Philadelphia, uh, nor in the Boston area. In fact, out there, culturally, that's a big no no. It's considered rude to do that, but uh, in Appalachia, it's not. And so I had this buddy drop by, his name's Rocky. And I was sharing some audio that I had recorded of just us sitting around and jawing and chewing the fat. But it reminded me of a story uh, involving poison ivy. I'm immune to poison ivy. And growing up, er- everybody I knew in my family was immune to poison ivy my brother, my sister, my dad. I don't know about my mom, but uh, you know we grew up way out in the woods, and poison ivy was everywhere, and, and it was never a problem for us. We were totally immune to it. We could take it in our hands and everything. the The vines, the leaves themselves, wad those leaves up, crush them in our hands, nothing, nothing. So I grew up thinking, and I really believe this, believing that uh, being allergic to poison ivy was all in a person's head i truly believe that and i i believed it up until just a few years ago in fact have uh kids from the city come to visit and uh we'd be out in the woods they'd be saying is that poison ivy is that poison ivy because they're freaking out worried about brushing up against some poison ivy and even if they were brushing through poison ivy we'd tell them no no it's no poison ivy because I was just convinced that it's all in your brain and I'm not going to entertain it I'm not going to play into that well (laughs) when my daughter was I think three yeah she was three um, I was renting this place that had every summer poison ivy grew up along the side of this house and uh, so one day I had her out there with me and I was tearing that poison ivy down with my bare hands tearing down all the vines and making a big pile of them and just the dust uh, she did not come into contact with any poison ivy or the vines or the leaves or nothing but just the dust coming off those vines so as I'm ripping them down the dust is, is in the air just the dust made her break out terribly with poison ivy. And uh, that, because she was only three, I knew that she had not had time to become indoctrinated into believing, to even knowing what poison ivy is, let alone believing that it can affect you that way. So that was my first real life proof that people having reactions to poison ivy is a real is an honest to god real thing before that I, I did not believe it I did not believe it because like I say I had never seen anybody break out from it and everybody in my family could handle the stuff no problem but that was proof positive for me anyway the story don't end there one night Rocky says hey uh, how about if I bring over some hot dogs and we have a fire tonight and uh rocky i'll tell you who he looks like he looks like popcorn sutton a famous moonshiner looks exactly like him looks like him talks like him dresses like him big old long gray beard older feller i said yeah that sounds like a good idea so it got dark he come over with the hot dogs and uh we st- i had a fire going there we started cooking the, the hot dogs over the fire Rocky ate, just you know, put putting the hot dog on a stick and cooking it over the open fire, and then uh, Rocky had a hot dog. And then uh, a little bit of time passed. He stuck another hot dog on a stick, cooked that over the fire, started eating that, and then he started coughing. <laughs> he says, "What do you got on that fire?" I said, "Why?" He says, "Whatever you got in that fire, it's it's choking me up." <laughs> And it turned out that it was those uh, poison ivy vines. I'd thrown a bunch of those vines I- into the fire. And here Rocky had cooked his wiener hot dog over top the the campfire. And the poison ivy was uh, affecting him. Oh, man, I laughed so hard about that. Because literally, only like the day before, had I had seen for the very first time poison ivy affect somebody. And here... <laughs> he was cooking his his wieners over the, the the poison ivy, and it was affecting him. I felt so bad, but you know that's just, I'm, I'm telling you that's just how much out of my mind it was that 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 was a real thing. That even after I saw it affect my daughter, I went right back to uh, thinking of it as you know not nothing that will affect anybody because it doesn't affect me and you know there's so many lessons from that that uh, I've just been hanging on to that and thinking about all the ways that that could be applied but I've told you I think that back you know before my big major life crisis I looked at psychology as just being quack stuff and just being total fiction and, um, and there I was living my whole life living with something that only psychology can explain and that only an interest uh, and a digging into psychology could fix but as far as I was concerned psychology was just a bunch of nothing it was just a big fictional joke so uh, two, two instances in my life where I learned a real important lesson about you can be so certain of a thing uh, and be proved uh, completely ignorant in the very next instant you know and it makes you completely change uh, your thinking on that thing happened with psychology happened with poison ivy there was a dog that climbed up under our house when I was growing up I've told you in the past that we'd have these dogs these uh, strays that people would just drop them off out in the woods out in the the back roads on the, in the country and um, we got a lot of our dogs that way and so there was this old dog climbed up underneath our house had a litter of puppies up underneath there real ugly dog my dad was talking about our breakfast one one morning he said now uh you guys hear any of those noises underneath the house? I said, no, what noises? He says, uh, sounds like a bunch of puppies. So what I think is that a stray got up underneath the house, had a bunch of puppies. Now, I don't want you going up underneath the house. I don't want you going in there because uh, it's a real small space and that dog decides to, to go after you, you got nowhere to go. It's real dangerous. I think I was 11 or 12 years old at the time. And I said, okay. But days passed and I started thinking about those dogs. I started hearing them too myself up underneath there. And, uh, you know, I love dogs. So <clears throat> I made up my mind that I was going to go up underneath the house and see what I could do for that mama dog and her puppies. And. I knew it was dangerous, and uh, so I knew that there was a risk, and I knew I had to be real careful. First time I got up underneath the house there to check on those pups, old mama dog, she started growling, uh, serious like, like saying, "Don't, don't you come no closer," and I was about oh, from here where I'm sitting to how to let you folks who were just listening get an idea how far away it was i'm gonna guess 20 yards away something like that it was a pretty good distance and i couldn't see her i could only hear her growling at me from about that distance away and so i just stopped right there in the dark i had no flashlight or anything there were some cracks where some sunlight was spilling in, just these little tiny cracks in the foundation where the light was coming in from outside. And, uh, you know, after a while, my eyes would adjust and I could see silhouettes there underneath the house. But I sat there real calm, not moving, not making any quick moves at all, not knowing how big this dog is, but hearing the pups. I can hear the pups whining and stuff, hear her moving around a little bit and I I started talking to her real soft hey there mama hey there mama I'm not here to hurt you I ain't here to hurt you mama you're okay you're okay did that I think I stayed underneath there for about an hour that day and I went back the next day and did the same thing she started growling at me I stopped there I'm on my hands and knees I'm I'm in a crawling position there truly is no room to move around down there just the ground and just oh I mean just enough space for me to crawl on my belly so I stopped there again I talked to her hey old mama it's alright it's alright I'm not here to hurt you nothing to worry about here again I stayed by another hour and then I left the next day or maybe the next three or four days something like that she was starting to get used to my voice and um, so I said well I'm going to try to crawl toward her and so I crawled uh, maybe two feet and she started growling I started talking to her again oh good old mama I know you got your old pups up there and you're just protecting your pups you're a good old girl left come back again and then as this progressed um, I would test my luck each day just a little bit more I'd crawl just a little bit further than I had crawled the day before and she'd let me get a little bit closer each time this went on for I'm not kidding a whole month of me doing this but I was so patient and no hurry whatsoever I was working with the understanding that she was probably had probably been abused she was probably scared and all these things and I I just really took my time and how exciting it was to go from such a distance you know of interacting with her from such a distance at the beginning to the day where I was right up close to her now she wouldn't let me touch the pups at that point she wouldn't let me touch her and I, and I wouldn't try but I'd just get right up close to her before she'd start growling and she, every day you know she, every day she determined how close I could get What when she said that's far enough that's where I stopped and I would just stop and I would just talk to her hey old mama, hey old mama it's good to see you, how are the old pups doing here you're such a good mom until the day that she let me pet her and she let me pet those old pups and even beyond uh, she finally allowed me to carry those pups out from underneath the house that was a big day those pups had never been out from underneath the house neither had mama since she went underneath there and, and had the litter of pups but uh, even after I brought her pups out she wouldn't come out and my dad was astonished (laughs) he was just astonished that she had let me do that and uh, eventually I coaxed her out from underneath the house but that took a lot more than actually her allowing me to bring her pups out was to uh, cook oh that was another thing when I'd go up underneath the house I started taking like a bowl of milk and stuff like that for her And food, and uh, that certainly helped things along. But um, finally, coaxed her out. We ended up keeping her. And like I said, she's an ugly old dog, had been mistreated and abused clearly. But the kindness and the patience that I showed, how that played, how that uh, paid off in allowing me to develop this relationship with her. And I, I think about her often, that, that poor old mama dog. She lived with us for years until she just died of old age. and um, In fact, we kept one of the pups from that litter. Another really ugly dog. I can't remember what the dog's name was. Ugly or something like that. It was a hideous looking dog. But you know how hideous things, when they're babies, uh, sometimes the hideousness enhances the cuteness. Because you know what I mean, it's like the Ugly Duckling type thing. But those were such great dogs, and uh, a lot of lessons in that story too, about how to deal with people, especially people who have been mistreated, and uh, in physical ways, and emotional ways, spiritual ways, um, mental ways. Uh, the type of patience that is required and where does that patience come from it comes from empathy right empathy, sympathy putting yourself in the other person's shoes trying to understand the things they're feeling and thinking and scared about so sometimes life calls for that if you imagine that I got up underneath that house and, hey, don't growl me don't you growl me, this is my house who you think you are how far you reckon that would have got me but then, on the other hand there are circumstances that call for that <laughs> right and, um, like I said at the beginning I'm not perfect in my dealings with people but I'm always trying to give a person what they need yeah always trying to give a person what they need what they truly need even if being harsh or seeming harsh I should say is what they need so there have been times where I've been harsh with people because they're entertaining they're, they're entertaining too much pointless things that get them nowhere it's just I call it wallowing you know wallowing in like self pity and stuff like that uh, that's a that's a thing that goes round and round and round and generally the way i've learned to snap somebody out of that um is with a li- with is with what seems like a little bit of harshness hey come on now that's what are you doing go splash some water on your face and let's get to work here that's not getting you anywhere. You know, we could be we could get stuck on that for years. This kind of "woe is me" type thinking. But then, on the other hand, um, when you see that a person is trying, um, they're not stuck in these type of "woe is me" type pointless thinking and stuff and wallowing. Um, they're really trying, but they're failing. And uh, then that's when the mama type treatment might be might be appropriate you know it's okay talking more softly being patient it's okay you'll get it you didn't get it this time but that's all right you know and um really the part where i was t- you know the part in the story of mama where she got to tell me how far i could go um that that's an art you know really to learn how to deal with people that way and um to not assume things but to be sensitive to the 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 feedback that you're getting from them do it with my daughter a lot try to feel her out feel her out for you know um, what she's ready for what she's not ready for things like that Uh, there will be times where I'm trying to teach my daughter something that to me seems very important and uh, about the world or whatever, and uh, go into it, thinking, "Wow, this is so important. She needs to hear this." But her mind's just not there, or her growth isn't quite there. She's thinking about video games, or she's thinking about this or that, and that's kind of like you know, listening to her, <laughs> listening to Mama growl and say, uh, that, "That's far enough right now." you know if i try to push it she's not going to retain the information she's not going to learn and she's not going to enjoy it but if i listen to, if i listen to the feedback i'm getting from her if i'm sensitive to that i can say to myself okay well she's her ears aren't open at this moment in time so she's not going to retain this i can talk for 40 minutes and all it's going to do is just bore her to death so maybe i'll shelve this for a little bit we'll come back to it another time and you'd be surprised uh, how I'll be sitting around totally absorbed in another thing, myself, when she will come up to me and say, Hey, Dad, um, do you remember when you were talking about such and such thing? Um, what did you mean about that? So it gets in there. So even though she's, she's not fully engaged, it gets in there. And it's kind of like a seed. She'll come to me later on. And tell me more about that. And you know, maybe, maybe I wasn't uh, feeling you know enthusiastic about having that conversation. Maybe I'm t- totally tied up in something else. But when I see that the timing is right for her, and the thing is still important to discuss, and I see that now this is mama, she's she's letting me crawl a little bit closer to her. Uh, that's a good time for me to say, "Well, okay, honey, I put my things aside." put my all my last symptom work aside <laughs> even though I know that it's going, to put, it's going to mean that I'm going to be recording this show until 1 o'clock in the morning instead of finishing at a reasonable time but I, I look and say the time is right for her so I put the stuff aside I say yeah honey I, uh, I'd love to tell you more about that and so anyway what what I was saying was this and this and this and uh, that's what life is like ain't it it's uh, it's having these experiences that are seemingly completely unrelated but learn, learning bigger things from them, like the story here with Mama underneath the house, uh, the story about the poison ivy and Rocky eating poison ivy hot dogs so, I had some other things, I wanted to read you a poem, I've been wanting to read you a poem here for, I'm not joking you, for uh two months now. <laughs> I keep just pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back. One thing I will share with you before we uh, call it a night is uh, hats. Why did men stop wearing hats? Those of you who are watching me on uh, Rumble or YouTube, I'll show you a picture here. This is a picture of a baseball game, I believe. And in the picture, there's this sea of people. It's a black and white picture. And um, every one of these people, every one of these guys are wearing a fedora or a newsboy ball cap and the the name of this article by joe scaglione from november 25th 2021 is titled why men stopped wearing hats have you ever wondered that he says the picture was t- the picture in the article was taken in 1923 outside of a soccer or football game i'm sorry so i'm a little biased toward, toward baseball but Uh, between West Ham United and the Bolton Wanderers he says you'll notice that every man in the picture except for one is wearing a hat and not a snapback or fitted lid with a sports team logo snapped on the front I'm talking about a full-on Don Draper let's get down to business, go home and drink ourselves into oblivion kind of hat we don't see that anymore, ever so what happened to these hats? Back in 1912, men didn't leave the house without a hat, and boys always wore caps. There isn't one sole reason, the article says, but many factors contributed to the decline, and one of those factors was the automobile. The automobile put an end to hat wearing. It says, the the most popular reason is the car. Car roofs made it difficult to wear a hat and generally made hats useless. In the 1920s, less than 1% of the population owned a car. This figure rose to 25% in 1940 and 55% in 1970. Men still bought hats, but wore them less. I found this interesting. In the 1920s, people walked everywhere, rode horses, traveled in open, uh carriages i'm guessing yeah so they needed protection from the elements but the invention of the automobile provided shelter over a person's head so there you go the car brought an end to people wearing hats uh many of you know that i'm a big fan of fedoras it's a habit that I picked up from my, my old Cherokee Indian mentor, Dave Selvage, and I wear fedoras to this day. Typically, uh, I wear them in the woods when I'm out on long excursions in the woods. Also, anytime I'm dressed up uh, in formal dress, then I like to pair that with a, a nice fedora. So I have about, over the years, I've accumulated, I think I have, eight or nine fedoras um, of varying degrees of quality but uh, my favorite hat is about 25 years old and it looks like I bought it yesterday and the oldest hat that I have I've had since I was 13 and I've got pictures of myself wearing that hat and it still fits my head today back when I was 13 I had to put some things on the inside around the inner band to make it fit my head but uh, I love that fedora and I still own it today And that's got some stories behind it that I'll tell you about one of these days. Ladies and gentlemen, do something nice for yourselves this weekend. I I enjoyed talking to you. Some shows are easier for me to talk than others. It's that human condition thing that we're always talking about. Take care.